They said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. But he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. So see the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going before you into Galilee, and there you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly, and they fled from the tomb. For they, were, they trembled and they were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Verse 9, now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. Verse 11, when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. And after that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and they went into the country and they went and told it to the rest but they did not believe them either. And in verse 14, later he appeared to the 11 as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. I'd like to read just three verses from Paul's letter to the church at Rome, Romans chapter four and verse number 23, Romans four. In verse 23, now it was not written for his sake, that's Abraham, his sake alone, that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who re raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. And then finally, Romans 8 and verse 31, a verse that we have been looking at this entire week. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? How many are glad God is for us? Aren't you glad for that? Father, thank you for your presence in this place this morning. We're so grateful that we have the hope. Even, Lord, when we've lost someone, near and dear to us, we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we know, Lord, that because you rose, they too and we too shall rise. That's the hope upon which our faith is built. I pray, Lord, in these next few minutes that um, we would learn, but more than learning, we would be changed and transformed. May the resurrection and the message of the resurrection never, ever become old to us, but may it become new and fresh every single day. I ask God for your help because I cannot rightly divide and rightly communicate your word without your anointing. It's not something that as preachers we work hard to earn or deserve because that could never happen but it is something that without, we cannot do what you've called us to do. So grant that anointing to me so that I can minister your word today and our hearts can be lifted, challenged, and changed by your presence and by your word, I pray in Jesus' name, amen.
So um, the past, the past is prologue. Well, if you've ever heard that statement or not, the past is prologue. That actually comes from Shakespeare's The Tempest, uh, written and acted more than four centuries ago. There are several acts in that play, The Tempest, that suggest that what has happened in the past should in a meaningful way set the stage for what is going to happen in the future. What's past is prologue. Underneath a statue in the front of uh, the National Archives in Washington, D.C., there is etched in stone that same statement, what is past is prologue. It means that history informs and indeed even predicts our future. It means that our lives are directly in a meaningful and significant way related to the past. History becomes very personal on this Easter Sunday morning. As we read Mark's description of the women going to the tomb, Mary Magdalene, Salome, Mary, the mother of Jesus, as they go to the tomb, they are debating among themselves as to how they are going to get that massive stone rolled away. They know it's great. They saw it there a couple of days before when his body was buried. They really didn't know how they would move it, but they talked about how that might happen. But when they arrived at the tomb, they were surprised and delighted initially to see that the stone was already rolled away, but then shocked to recognize that the tomb was empty. However, as they looked in a little more closely, they saw a man sitting there on the right, a man that we later find out is an angel, and he said to them, you need not be afraid. I don't really know why you're looking for the living among the dead. He is not here, but he has risen, and so go and tell the others as well. This was their announcement, as we read in all of the Gospels, of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus had died just a few days before. They had watched him die. They had watched him be placed in the tomb. But now God had raised him from the dead. It was a historical event that happened more than two millenniums ago. And it informs us still today. The past is indeed prologue. What happened then in the empty tomb and in the resurrection of Christ shapes and informs our lives today as well. This is what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 4 when he writes these words. It was not written for his Abraham's sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. And then in big, bold, large letters, I want you to see who was delivered up because of our offenses. And he was raised up for our justification. Both he died for us, he was raised for us. This has been our theme all week long. If God is for us, who could be against us? He was spent for us, is what we talked about last weekend. He died for us. We celebrated on Friday, and now Jesus was raised for us. The story of the resurrection never gets old. 
should never lose its impact. The New Living Translation says it this way, he was handed over. He was handed over to die because of our sins that he was raised alive to make us right with God. So I wanna talk about the resurrection this morning. Uh, three very important truths. But before I do that, let me just share a few thoughts. Uh, I decided to add this yesterday afternoon, but I, I think it helps set the stage. Uh, my first and second point are a little bit different than I would normally preach just on a given Sunday, but I'm gonna spend some time talking about the certainty, the confidence that we can have that Jesus indeed did come out of the tomb. We can be absolutely certain. It doesn't have to be a hope to. It doesn't have to be, well, I think it happened. We can be certain as 21st century people here in America that this is not just some figment of our imagination or some fairy tale. And I would suggest to you that many of the battles that are raging in our culture today have to do with a lack of belief in this profound and essential truth that Jesus rose from the dead. We have all sorts of arguments and battles taking place in political arenas and on social media about issues of morality and issues of sexuality and issues of life, identity issues and human value issue, who has value, who does not. These issues are often fought in the political arena and often they are categorized as conservative and liberal and left and right. Many times in those arguments from both sides, Scripture is cited and people like to use the words of Jesus and they, they enjoy making their arguments and engaging the debate by quoting the words of Jesus. But as I have observed and have watched that go on and have even engaged it on occasion myself, I've recognized that many on both sides of that issue are really arguing from the understanding that Jesus was a really great man. He was a really good moral teacher. He had some good advice and, and he said some really good things and, and certainly his life was a good model for many. And so they try to dig into the life of Jesus, seeing him as just a really good man and a great moral teacher. So often those arguments are battled out on the turf of political ideology or intellectual rhetoric. Let me suggest to you this morning, if Jesus really rose from the tomb, if he really was placed in that tomb and he was dead, not swooning, as some way out there theologians have suggested, if he was really dead and placed in the tomb and he really rose out of the tomb, then he was far more than just a good moral teacher. He was far more than just somebody that had some great wisdom to share. He was far more than just a model for us to try to follow after and live a good life. If Jesus really rose, then all of the issues need to be shoved away from the political arena. They need to be lifted out of our intellectual rhetoric and our preferred ideologies. And we need to submit ourselves to the one who is indeed powerful enough to conquer death. He's not just a good teacher, not just a good guy, not just a moral leader. He's the son of God that raised from the dead in power. And if that's true, it puts a whole new meaning to all of our questions because his word then becomes truth. Not just a truth, it becomes the truth, supernatural 
and that which we should submit ourselves to. In reality, it boils down to whether or not you and I believe in the resurrection. If it really happened, if he really rose, I have no problem submitting to him. Because no one else has ever done that. If he really rose from the dead and conquered death, I want to listen to what he says, and I want my life to align with his. If it's not true, then we can wrangle politically all we want, and your ideology is as good as mine, is as good as the next one. But if Jesus rose from the dead, we need to listen to what he says. It's not a value assessment. It's a matter of truth. With that said, let me talk first of all about the uniqueness of Christ's resurrection. How is the resurrection of Christ different? How is it of greater significance than any other event the world has ever known? Let me say to you, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament. For those of you who don't know, there's hundreds of years that separate the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, and the first book in the New Testament, Matthew. 400 years separate Malachi from the birth of Jesus in Matthew. 400 years, four centuries. And yet it was in the Old Testament that the death and burial of Jesus and his resurrection were prophesied. More than 400 years In most cases, more than 700 years before he was even born, it was prophesied that he would die and be resurrected. Isaiah 53, that most of us know, was written 700 years before Jesus speaks of the Messiah and said he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. was talking about the death of Jesus seven centuries before there was a Jesus. In that same chapter, it says, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all their sins. So the same chapter, look at me, that predicts his death also predicts the fact that he will be alive and will see all the fruits of his work. In Psalm 1610, a psalm that is written specifically about the Messiah that would come hundreds of years before Jesus. The psalmist said of the Messiah, you will not leave my soul among the dead or allow your Holy One to rot in the grave. You will show him the way of life, granting him the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. Hosea 6 also even describes that the Messiah would be buried and stay there for three days and then would resurrect. All of that hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. It was prophesied. Secondly, Jesus himself announced it beforehand. One day when wrangling with the Pharisees who were so proud of their temple, he said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And they couldn't believe that he was saying that. They said, it took us decades to build that temple. And John tells us what Jesus was really saying in parentheses. He said, Jesus was speaking of his body. He wasn't talking about the physical temple. If you destroy this, in three days I will raise it up. He also said to the Pharisees who wanted a sign, there will be no sign given you except the sign of Jonah. As Jonah was three days in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the belly of the earth. 
So it was prophesied. Christ announced it beforehand. Thirdly, his resurrection was not temporary. This is how it is unique. This is how it is significant. Lazarus was raised after being dead four days, but he died again. Dorcas was raised from the dead. She died again. Eutychus was raised from the dead. He died again. But in Revelation 1, Jesus stands and he says to John, I am he that was alive and was dead. And behold, now I am alive forevermore. His resurrection is significant. It's unique because it was not temporary. Number four, it's unique because he raised himself up by the power of the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 11, if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he'll quicken your mortal body. It was the spirit of God that raised Jesus up. Number five, I love this one. That's why you all rejoiced when we sang there ain't no grave. His resurrection ensures ours. You see, some of you have loved ones that have already passed on. You miss them dearly, but you have the hope that it's not over because Jesus, the Bible says, was the first fruits of our resurrection because he died. He paved the way for all of us to someday be raised and spend eternity with him. His resurrection is unique because it ensures ours. Number six, his resurrection proved that he was God. Romans 1, 4, it says that he was declared to be the son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And number seven, his resurrection is the foundation of our Christianity. Look at me for just a moment. If Jesus did not come out of the tomb, you and, all, you and I are wasting our time here today. I mean, this is an absolute farce. If he didn't come out of the tomb, there's no reason. I, there, actually that, there actually are churches that teach his resurrection wasn't bodily. It was just in the spirit and in people's mind. Folks, if his resurrection was just a figment of our imagination in our mind, we have wasted our time having seven services this weekend. I should have played golf. You understand what I'm talking about? It was a complete waste of time. But the fact of the matter is, it did happen. It is the absolute anchor. It is the foundation of our hope. Look at what Paul says. If there's no resurrection of the dead, Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we've testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he didn't raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead don't rise, then Christ isn't risen. And if Christ isn't risen, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus didn't come out of the tomb, we're all on our way to hell today. We are still in our sins. But the very next verse says, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he's become the first fruits of those who slept. How many are glad that Jesus rose from the dead? And here's the one I really want you to hear. And young people, I want you to listen real closely to me. There is no other, this is how his resurrection is unique. There's no other founder of a religion that has ever died and been raised. It's never happened before. Tal Davis of the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Church wrote this account. It's powerful. And I would guess those who are in college or maybe just out of college or getting ready to go to college, listen, especially David, a 19-year-old Southern Baptist was in his first year at State University. His basic studies program required that he take several electives in humanities or religion. He scanned the course catalog and he found a class in comparative religion, a particular interest of his taught by the school's most distinguished professor of religion. 
professor, a graduate of famous, a famous Ivy League theological seminary, began the class with a statement that caught David by surprise. Here's what he said. We will be examining the history and beliefs of the major religious movements of the world. But let me say at the outset, we will begin with the presupposition that every one of them is a legitimate expression of the cultural, social, psychological, and existential experience of its adherents. Though they may differ in external and formal statements of doctrine and practice, they all express a similar essence of the awe and mystery in life and the universe. Furthermore, we will assume that each of the founders of the religion were all, in their various ways, expressing similar and universal moral and spiritual concepts. Thus, we will assume they are all equal in their authority and revelational validity. Can I just pause and say to you for just a moment that there are some people that become so smart that they are just so stupid. Do you understand what I'm talking about? It is, as, as a person who, I, I worked really hard and I got a master's and a doctorate, but I've sat with people that have the same degrees as I am and I have no idea. It's not that hard. You just jump through enough hoops and you can get the little letters behind your name. It doesn't necessarily make you smart. David looked around his room and he wondered, was anyone else in the class as stunned by the teacher's pronouncement as he? Apparently not, as every other student looked straight ahead showing no sense of surprise or concern. Listen to me, parents, young people, unfortunately, David's experience is a common one for college students. Often raised in Christian homes and conservative churches, they are confounded when tenets of their faith are challenged by authoritative figures with letters behind their name like college professors. We have not adequately equipped our young people to understand why the resurrection is valid. Let me tell you why the, it's valid. Four things real quickly, and I'm going to give you some more in just a moment. First of all, Jesus is the only world religious leader to have no beginning and no end. He was, the, he, he was eternally existed. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. What the Word was God and the Word was with God. The same was in the beginning with God. He has always been. He had no beginning. He has no end. Secondly, Jesus is the only world religious leader to have come into the world the way he did by a virgin birth. Number three, he is the only world religious leader to have lived a perfect and a sinless life. Number four, he is the only world religious leader to have died a sacrificial death for humanity. And number five, he is the only world religious leader to have raised from the dead. Do you understand there is no other religious leader who has raised from the dead? Jesus did. That's why his resurrection is unique and we need to listen to what he says. Somebody say amen if you believe that. Now secondly, how confident can we be? What about the veracity of his resurrection? How certain are we of his resurrection? Is it true? Does it have integrity? Dr. S. Joshua Swamandas. He is a medical doctor, physician. He is a PhD. He's a scientist. He's the assistant professor of laboratory and genomic medicine at Washington University in St. Louis. And he recently wrote about his personal convictions as both a Christian and a scientist. He said this, I'm a scientist. 
I want everybody to listen closely. But still on Easter, I celebrate that Jesus rose from the dead more than 2,000 years ago. This event in first century Palestine is the cornerstone of everything. In the same way that trust like faith in science is connected to evidence, so is the faith that I have in the resurrection. What is the evidence from which I grew my trust? Let me share five or six evidences with you that, that unless you just want to be stubborn, you have a hard time tonight. Number one, without the physical resurrection, 2,000 years of history are left begging for an explanation. Tell me how a small little group, a small little band of Jews, fishermen, a tax collector, a, a rough bunch of people, got together with a bunch of women and facing all kinds of opposition, many of them tortured, opposed by both the Romans and the Jews. In the very early years, stoned, Peter crucified upside down. Tell me how that little small band of Jewish believers, against all odds and against all opposition that was often violent, were able to cross all ethnic, cultural, geographic, linguistic, and political barriers and completely reframe human history. It changed our calendar. It changes everything. How did that happen? A bunch of fishermen and a bunch of women and a bunch of uneducated men together turned the world upside down. It could only happen if there was an event so significant as the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Number two, with dates established, I love this one. I, I said that several, I love them all. Okay, let me just tell you that. Number two, with dates established by radiometric analysis, prophecies from centuries before Jesus' birth predict his life, death, and resurrection. This is not, this is not just people making up stuff. This, this has been analyzed. And you realize that there are prophecies that include hundreds of years before Jesus was even born, prophecies that include specific details that Jesus and his followers could not have controlled. For example, the Romans, get this, the Romans invented crucifixion. It had never been done. They were the ones that invented it. That was in the first century A.D., but in Psalm 22:16, written hundreds of years before, the psalmist describes how the hands and the feet of Jesus would be pierced. Someone would read that and have no clue what they were talking about. But God breathed that through the psalmist, and he described how Jesus would be crucified before that means of execution even existed. Number three. Jesus was a real person in history who died. There are several manuscripts, non-Christian manuscripts, historians that describe a man named Jesus who lived and was executed and who the story goes, they found his tomb empty three days later. Number four, this is my favorite one because I'm just kind of a, a junkie when it comes to scriptural um, confidence. I'm confident that this is not just a book. I don't care what your professor says. This is not just a book. In 2009, as of 2019, I want you to listen to this one closely. There are more than 20,000 
New Testament manuscripts that have been found all over the world. Copies. Listen, they didn't have any, there, there was no photographing. There was no uh, photocopying. There were no printing presses. Every time they would have to write it out word for word. More than 20,000 copies of the New Testament in different languages from hundreds of miles apart from different centuries, all the way back to the second century and then going on from there. 20,000 manuscripts. People that aren't even Christians have laid them side by side and they have walked away after analyzing saying there is no difference at all. No significant difference. Every once in a while a letter because listen if I tried to write it they'd never be able to read it. But they, they you know dotting an I or whatever. Sometimes there were a few variations. Nothing significant and nothing that invalidates the reliability of the resurrection accounts. And that may not be a big deal to you. Let me tell you this. 20,000. You know how many manuscripts we have of Plato and Aristotle? We have 49. We have 49 ancient manuscripts of Aristotle. And we have seven ancient manuscripts of Plato. And I bet you there's not one person who has said in a college class who has ever had a professor doubt whether or not Aristotle or Plato said what they said. And nobody said, oh, we don't have any evidence for that. Seven manuscripts. And the first one of each of them is more than a thousand years removed from the original. And yet we have New Testament copies that are more, that are less than a hundred years removed from when Jesus was. And yet people pound away at the veracity of scripture. I'm telling you, I have absolute confidence that the same God who spoke the world into existence, breathed into men of God as they wrote this book and then watched very carefully to make sure that it got, he superintended the process of making sure that when I preach this book in, on Easter Sunday in 2021, I can stand here with confidence that this word is still true. Say amen if you believe it. This is not a fairy tale, folks. You don't have to tuck your head and be ashamed that you believe. People that are wise understand that this is the truth of God's word. Number five, accounts, if you don't even believe that, look at this one. Accounts of the resurrection include inconvenient and unflattering details that make most sense as attempts to reliably record what happened free of any kind of embellishment. Listen, there are those who say, ah, men wrote that, and it's just, a, it's just a silly little fairy tale. It was just a bunch of men that were writing it. It can't be real. Can I tell you something? Look at me for just a moment. In the first century, in the first century, women were not even allowed to be a witness as valid evidence in a courtroom. They were not even brought in. A woman could say, I saw this happen, and they would not even be allowed to come in because their witness had no credibility at all. This was a culture where women were shamed and men were always honored. And yet men who wrote this book tell the story about how on resurrection morning, they're hiding out because they're scared. But bold women go to the tomb and they are the first ones to announce and witness the resurrection of Jesus. Do you think Peter would have allowed that to have been said if it wasn't true? Do you think that, that Matthew and Mark and Luke and John would have told everybody in the world for centuries that they were cowards hiding out in a room somewhere where Mary and Salome and Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and witnessed of Jesus? Not a chance. This is not a fabricated account. This is true true. Jesus rose from the tomb. Say amen if you believe that. And finally, after Jesus's violent death, think about this. 
His followers were frightened and they were scattered. But something happened. Something changed them. They grew a strong and bold and confident belief that resisted and sustained all murderous opposition. What convinced them that Jesus was inconceivably greater than anything else? What changed them and awakened them from their fear and their cowardice? It was the fact that they saw him alive. He's alive. And they were changed and a boldness filled them. Can I just tell you, with great confidence, we can affirm the reliability and the veracity of Christ's resurrection. Which leads me to my final point, and I'll only spend four or five minutes here and we'll be done. So what are the implications of his resurrection? First of all, you can sit there and you can say, no, I'm still not going to believe. That's fine. That's, that's everyone's choice. The fact of the matter is, anyone who has really seriously analyzed the facts, the evidence, they walk away from it saying, it happened. He rose from the tomb. The question is, what am I going to do with that? Romans 4.22, therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness, but not written for his sake alone, that it was imputed to him for us also. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who, is ra who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. Let me just talk you through this real quickly and I'll be done. If I just listen to me for five more minutes, listen close. The problem of sin was solved at the cross. He was delivered up. That's what the scripture says. Delivered up because of our offenses. Our offenses, that's our sin. It's caused all the conflict that our world knows today. Isaiah 6 says God is holy. And Romans 3 says we have all sinned and we've come short of God's glory and God's holiness. In Romans 6 then, Romans 3 says that. Romans 6 says that the wages, the penalty for our sin is death. And so we've all sinned and the penalty for our sin is death. But God's plan was to reconcile the world. He wanted to bring people back to himself. So the death of Jesus on the cross provided that redemption and that forgiveness. The cross is where a holy God poured out his wrath on sin in the person of Jesus. Instead of you getting God's wrath poured out on you, he who knew no sin became sin for us. And God poured out his wrath, the penalty of sin, all poured out on Jesus. He was delivered up, says, not by Pilate. Pilate didn't deliver him up. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said, you can't take my life from you. I lay it down. You're not taking it away from me. I'm giving it. He was delivered up for our offenses. It was not an accident. The crucifixion of Jesus was not just a moment in history. It was the moment when Jesus paid the debt for our transgressions. He was delivered up for our offenses. It was also a substitutionary death. I hope you get this. You, you remember when Pilate said, well, I don't find anything wrong with him. There's no fault in this guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. And Pilate was trying to get off the hook. His wife said, don't mess with Jesus. Don't mess with him. And, and, but he's got all these people out there pushing him. The Jews want Jesus executed. And so Pilate decided, I'm, I've got a plan. It's the Passover. We always release one prisoner. Surely they'll want Jesus released. And so he went and got another, a bad a bad criminal by the name of Barabbas. Bar is son of. 
Abbas is father. Remember, we cry Abba, father. And so Bar Abbas means son of father. He was representative, I believe, of all the sons and daughters of all the fathers and mothers, the son of the father Barabbas. He should have been executed. Pilate said, how about him? And we'll release Jesus. And they said, no, we want Jesus. Release Barabbas. And so they took Jesus and they beat him and Barabbas watched. I'm sure that Barabbas followed the little line through the city when Simon of Cyrene is carrying his cross and I bet he was standing somewhere near when he heard the blunt force of the hammer pushing the nails through the flesh of Jesus. And I wonder if Barabbas maybe looked at his own hands and wondered what that would have felt like if they would have gone through his and pierced his. He hears Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And it is finished. And into thy hands I commend my spirit. It was a substitutionary death. He died for you and me. He was delivered for our offenses, justification, the power of justification now. The power of justification was validated by the resurrection. He was raised for our justification. What is justification? It's a legal term. It means to declare someone innocent. You don't have any guilt, no shame, no burden. It is just as if I'd never sinned. No punishment. You are declared not guilty. How many are glad that God declared you not guilty? Now let me ask you this. How many know that you really are guilty? But he declared you not guilty because he was raised for our justification. It is God declaring us righteous in heaven even though we were not before. With it comes adoption. A child not biologically part of the family is legally declared to be part of the family, though both child and parent are the same walking out of the courtroom. They are not the same walking out as walking in. A new relationship has been established. When you accept Christ, you're not the same any longer. You go in an enemy of his, you come out a son or a daughter of his. That's why the gospel is such good news. That's why I've given my life to it. I believe it. I don't doubt it at all. It's not a way to make a living. It's a way to see the kingdom expanded and see friends and loved ones someday be in heaven as well. But I've got to respond to what Jesus did at the cross. So since the penalty for sin is death, Jesus in bearing our sin had to die. Somebody had to die. Jesus took the penalty for me. But listen to me. Look at me. If Jesus had only died, it would signal that death had defeated him and us. And if there is no resurrection, that's why we're still dead in our sins. His resurrection happened, and it has sweeping implications. Number one, it means death. His death was acceptable. God said, that does it. I'll take that payment. It's acceptable as payment for your sin and mine. Secondly, it means that Jesus is the Son of God. He is who he said he was, and he has defeated Satan's plan to destroy us. Number three, it means that sin and death have forever been defeated. And number four, it means that just as Jesus had power over death, so will we because of his resurrection. We can absolutely, listen to me, you can absolutely go to the bank on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
He was delivered for our offenses. He was raised for our justification. I want you to stand, and I'm going to close here in just a couple of moments. Hold steady if you can. I want to take you back to the text in Romans 4. Instead of reading it, let me just sum it up real quickly. Romans 4 is about Abraham. And you, you know what it says about Abraham? Everybody listen really closely. You know what it says about Abraham? Abraham was promised that he was going to be the father of many nations. That's good. I'm going to have lots of children, he thought. And have lots of family. In fact, God said, look at the stars, look up in the stars, and as, as many as those are, if you can count them, that's how many descendants you're going to have. Well, I think all of us biologically understand if I'm going to have lots of descendants, it's got to start with one, right? Well, he was 100 years old and he still didn't have a child. Starting to doubt that a little bit. Not only was he 100 years old, his wife was 90. And the text actually says that he thought his body was as good as dead. And so was Sarah's womb. In other words, it was biologically not going to happen at 190. To be very honest, even if it could happen at 57, I wouldn't want a kid, would you? Come on now, really. 190. But the Bible says that he did not waver in the promise of God. He believed it. In fact, it says his faith grew stronger with time. And it brought glory to God because he was fully convinced. Listen, he was fully convinced that what God had promised, he was able to perform. And Romans 4 says because he had that kind of faith that what God had promised he would do, when God saw that kind of faith, God imputed, that's just a, that's an accounting word. God put righteousness in Abraham's account. I'm going to make you righteous because of your faith in the promise. That's what Romans 4 says. But then Romans 4, this is where we picked it up. Romans 4 then says, but it was not just for Abraham. It was for us too, who believe that God raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Because if we believe that, if we have the same kind of faith Abraham had in the promise of a child, if we believe that God raised him from the dead, guess what God will do? God will impute righteousness into our accounts. So if we believe, that's why Paul says, if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and we believe that God has raised him from the dead, we got to believe that. If we'll do that and have that kind of faith, God will impute righteousness, right standing, justification into our lives. Keith Hartzell wrote this little, quick little blurb of a story. He said, I was with a friend few years ago, I was in California. We were on the busy streets of LA and I noticed that his cell phone was locked with an unusual password and it just said pronobis, P-R-O-N-O-B-I-S, two words. I asked him what pronobis meant and why he chose that for a password. He told me it was Latin, it was Latin for, for us. And then he suddenly started choking up. And I thought, why would two Latin words, pronobis, caused such emotion. So then he composed himself and he started telling me the story. His life was a wreck. His parents divorced. He had a couple of tragedies in his life. Everything seemed to fall apart. He couldn't understand why God would do that to him, why God would allow that to him. It was a season that he assumed that God didn't care about him, fell into a depression. But he finally found hope when he heard the message preached, if God is for us, Pronobis, who can be against us? And that became his screensaver on his cell phone, Pronobis. When he doubted other things, 
When things didn't go the way he wanted them to go, when somebody let him down, he'd look at that and prono beast, but God is for us. I just want to tell you, God has always been for you. He is, was then, and he is now for us. What's past is prologue. The resurrection informs and shapes our future if we place our faith in him. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised for our justification. He was and he is for us. Father, thank you for your word today. What, a, what an amazing, what an amazing truth that you took the penalty of our sin and God raised you from the dead to validate it as payment in full for our sin. And we can walk out of here not afraid, not uncertain, but with peace and confidence, knowing that you are for us and we are yours. What a rich promise that is, and I thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Your head's bowed this morning. Nobody looking around. I have, um, as best I knew how, tried to just lay out for you the truth of God's Word. Every man and every woman, every boy and every girl, every young person was born a sinner. We have all sinned and we come short of the glory of God. Jesus loved us so much that he allowed himself to take the penalty for our sin. It was all laid on him. All he asks is that we place our faith in him. And we say, Lord, I believe that you died for me. And because you did that for me, I'm going to serve you. If he only died for you, I wouldn't ask you to make such a great commitment. But he didn't just die for you, God raised him up, which means that the price that he paid was valid. He was delivered for your sin, but he was raised for your justification. That's how much he's for you. But if you're here today and you've never invited Jesus Christ to be the Lord of your life, or maybe you did it one time and you uh, maybe you didn't really commit yourself to him, maybe you've not really served him, Maybe you've never, ever served him. But on this Easter Sunday, 2021, you say, I think that uh, I know the resurrection's true. It's really hard to dispute. And if it's true, that his word must be true. And if his word is true, I have to make a decision. That's what I'm asking you to do today. I'm not asking you to respond to any kind of emotional appeal of mine. I'm asking you to make a decision to follow Jesus as the Holy Spirit tugs at your heart and says, I want you in eternity with me. I'm asking you to make a decision for Jesus to say, I'm going to follow him because I believe he did what the word says he did. If there's anyone here this morning that would raise a hand and say, pray for me. I want to commit my life to Jesus Christ. Would you just slip up your hand right where you're at? Anyone in this room, I'm not going to have you come to the front. I'm just going to pray with you. Thank you. 
Thank you. You can put it up and back down. Is there another hand? Someone else? Another hand? I'm going to give you just a moment. Anyone else that would say, would you pray for me? I want to make Jesus Christ the Lord of my life. Anyone else today? Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? I want to surrender my life to Jesus. Thank you. Anyone else this morning? Anyone else? I want to give my life to Christ today. Pray with me. Everyone, please, out loud. Pray these words. Jesus, I thank you for dying on the cross for me. Today, I declare my faith. I believe you are who you said you are. And I receive you as my Savior. I believe on the cross you paid for my sin. And I believe three days later you were raised. I ask you now to be my Lord, to be my Savior. I will serve you with your help from this day forward. With my mouth, I confess you as Lord, and in my heart, I believe you are alive. Father, I thank you for what you did for us at Calvary. Thank you that the tomb was empty. And I pray, Lord, that those who prayed that prayer, maybe for the first time in minutes, they would understand that in this moment, when they truly place faith in what you did at the cross and in your resurrection, that they, in fact, have passed from death to life they now can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that they have eternal life, that they are adopted into the family of God. I thank you for that. We're going to sing this chorus another time or two through before we dismiss. If you raised your hand and you prayed with me today, or if you didn't, but you prayed with me and you really made that commitment, I'm going to invite you. You don't have to, but I would encourage you to invite you when we all leave and dismiss if you want to come down toward the front to my right over by the altar someone will meet you there and just give you a little booklet that will help you in your walk with the Lord and just maybe pray a little prayer over you um, we'd love to do that and I think it would be helpful to you in your walk with Christ can we just worship him as we